This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. It's a very cold morning and I'm by the side of the River Thet on the Norfolk-Suffolk border. And it's difficult to imagine a more peaceful and quiet forest scene. There's not much light about. It's very kind of wintry. All the colour has washed out of the greens. I've got my hands in my pockets. For this week's open country, I've come to Thetford Forest, which is Britain's largest lowland man-made forest. This forest is a very young forest. It was built, constructed, planted after the First World War. 2019 is the centenary of the founding of the Forestry Commission and one of their first big projects was this. So we've come to see a different sort of forest to the forest that that you might think of, the old forest with wild boar and, you know, Robin Hood hiding behind the trees. So we've come to see the different uses that you might make of a forest and, frankly, the different sorts of animals that you might go strolling about with or running about with in a forest. Yes, there's nothing like a quiet walk in the forest. And this is nothing like a quiet walk in the forest. Because there's a dozen dogs and and their owners. The dogs are keen to go. Sarah Connell. Morning. Good morning. Is chair of... King's Forest Canny Cross Group. What is Canny Cross? Uh, Canny Cross is basically cross-country running, you know, off-trail running, as a team with a human and a dog team, usually one or two dogs, and you are both hooked up together. So the handler, the the human element, wears a, a belt specifically for being pulled, if you like, and then we have a bungee line between the handler and the dog, or dogs. The bungee gives a little bit of shock absorption. Now, the idea with Canny Cross is that the dogs run ahead. They're supposed to run on uh, a tight line, but we often have very tight lines when they're very excited and they go a little (laughs) bit fast and there can be lots of very odd noises coming from the human handler part um, of trying to keep control. Is it competitive? Yes, there's various races uh, across the country. And it's a big sport in in Europe. It's massive and it's sort of now getting more and more popular here. How did it start, Canicross? Well, essentially it uh, came off the back of mushing you know the huskies mushing when the huskies got a bit too old or weren't so able to be in the teams to pull the rigs etc then the people started to to run them to give them the, the exercise they needed but they it wasn't quite so stressful on them because it's not quite uh, you know pulling a rig with six other dogs see when i take my dog for a walk what what she tends to do is stop well, well, we, we do. well, hands, you know, you're running along and suddenly the dog's... And you're like, you have to You have to apply your brakes do fairly you? quickly. <laughs> I've fallen over mine before now. I can't believe that I haven't seen it before. As a betting man, you, so that lovely spaniel there, Yeah. I would imagine that he's not as fast as... 
those grey. You're completely and utterly wrong. Am He's I? one of our fastest. Is he? Yeah. So you can't tell? No, it, it covers all breeds. I mean, as long as a dog is healthy, the dog's got to be over 12 months old to, to start running because they've got to wait for growth plates and everything to close. But it can be anything. As you can see around you, we have all sorts. We've got Beagle over there. We've got Pointers. Pointers are very, very popular in the canicross sport. We've got the Endurance... Uh, and speed. Why the forest? Never run on pavements. Yeah. Um, it's always forest trails. Do you kind of notice the forest as you run? Or? Uh, yes, we experience deer occasionally, which uh, gives us a bit of acceleration and produces lots of expletives. We use the, the wider trails when there's a, a few of us like this. I wonder if there's something in forest air that makes that is. It can be colder in the yeah. forest, that's for sure. Do you think? <laughs> yes, definitely. It's usually yeah. a degree or two colder once you're in the trees, etc. There's a bloke in shorts there. I, know. I can't help thinking he's made a terrible mistake. And a, t- and a t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Must be absolutely frozen solid. Yeah. Poor sausage. Any, any last okay, points? guys, that people I'm interviewing actually run away from me. (laughs) They've gone. I've come away from Santon Downham, which is the the headquarters, if you like, of the Thetford Forest, to the High Lodge area to meet Anne Mason from the Friends of Thetford Forest and uh, Roger Woods from the Forestry Commission. Are these Scots pines? Am I being horribly ignorant? No, they're Scots pines. I mean, there's a couple of oaks here, but the Corsican pines are very, very distinctive because they're almost like, I wouldn't say quite ramrod straight, but they have very tall trunks, followed by a little sort of fluff of green on the top. And at this time of year, it's nice to see green in a forest, you know. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a low bank, maybe up to my waist. I keep saying my waist, I'm six foot three. About a metre high. This is a very special feature of Thetford Forest, and it was actually being protected by the forest being planted about 100 years ago around the banks. And the banks represent the perimeter banks of medieval rabbit warrens. In the Middle Ages, rabbits were high-class luxury items and you had to have the rank of Lord of the Manor or above to be able to own a rabbit warren. And a warren was an area designated for the farming of rabbits for their meat and their fur. And we know there were 19 medieval warrens in this area of East Anglia. And what we're looking at is the remains of the perimeter bank of Downham Warren, And this perimeter bank runs about eight miles in the landscape around High Lodge. And although it's about a metre high now, originally it would have been two metres high and 12 metres wide, and it would have had a hedge of gorse planted on the top 
as an added deterrent to the rabbits escaping from the warren and also to stop predators going into the warren because even in the Middle Ages, poaching was big business because rabbits commanded such high prices. See, you know, I'm not an expert on rabbits, but what I know about them is that they dig holes. They do dig holes. So couldn't they just go, we're free? (laughs) There are records of rabbits escaping... But if you were a peasant, you weren't allowed to kill a rabbit. They were protected. And if you were found killing a rabbit because it was eating your crops, you would be fined or imprisoned. That's amazing. You don't have to go very far in the British Isles to encounter the class system, I always think. You certainly don't, (laughs) no. And there was actually even a strict hierarchy of which rabbit fur you could wear according to your rank. So silver grey and black were the highest-ranking nobles in the land in terms of what they could wear. We know Henry VII had a nightshirt that was lined with black rabbit fur. And I want one. <laughs> Why haven't I got one? And one of my absolute favourite stories is that when Catherine of Aragon, as Queen of England, came to Thetford in 1513, the monks of Thetford Priory, who owned four of these warrens in this area, decided to give her a present, and they gave her rabbit fur trimmings for her gowns. How lovely. How fantastic. This is long before the forest, of course. Yes. To what extent was this a Neolithic landscape? I mean, the flint mines. Well, certainly... Because Grimes Graves is yes, not is, far from Yes, is there. not far away. It's, Which is the old that's Neolithic, the Neolithic flint, flint mines. Yes, yes going, back, going back 4,000 years. We have found evidence of Neolithic worked flints, but we're still... You know, having to verify whether or not these are Neolithic flint pits. But across the forest is the most amazing Bronze Age landscape of burial mounds, particularly on the ridges and the higher points. So we know that this area was occupied by prehistoric peoples. And also we found evidence in some archaeological investigations we've been doing that there was actually an Iron Age and a Romano-British settlement in this area as well. And we're busy looking at the trackways as well because the planting of Thetford Forest 100 years ago has actually conserved some of these more ancient tracks in the landscape. And although now they may be forest rides, we think they have got prehistoric origins. So it's a very exciting landscape. Beneath the trees, there's 4,000 years of history. I'm minded to switch over to Roger to ask about how the forest arrived. I mean, as Anne was explaining, I mean, prior to the trees, this was Heathland. You know, it was originally called Thetford Chase and in the days of old when knights were bold, etc., you know, uh, kings and, and gentry would be chasing across this landscape after deer and, and, and rabbits and, and, and other wildlife. The trees have only been here literally post the First World War in, uh-huh. in the abundance that they are. You know, you come to Thetford Forest, we've got 35 square miles of coniferous plantation. And, you know, if you took an aerial view, it's a patchwork of all sorts of different shades of green dictating the ages of the trees. And the, it was the Forestry Act in 1919 which came into place to put Britain back on the map industrially post the First World War that trees were required as pit props to get into the you know the coal pits and Mm -hmm. and and extract the coal to to set industry back on its footing so trees started to be planted the first one actually for the forestry commission and we're in our 100th year now 2019 
was down in Eggersford in the southwest of England. Here in Thetford Forest, it was around about 1922, 1923. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the soil is right for. Corsican pine, as Anne explained, you know, it's a sandy soil on top of, you know, chalk and clay. You know, they are perfect trees to be grown at pace, you know, quickly to fulfil their sort of primary role, which was to get Britain back on its feet. So what was the wood used for in the First War and after the war? Well, during the First World War, it's been estimated that one soldier fighting needed five trees for huts for his accommodation, for the trenches infrastructure, for crates for moving weapons and supplies, and, of course, very sadly, for all those coffins. And so by the end of the First World War, the nation's timber stocks were the lowest ever recorded, and that's another reason for the Forestry Commission being set up primarily to replenish the nation's timber stocks. Wow. Is your planting affected by climate change? Um, we're certainly looking at different species to plant in the forest. I mean, obviously, red band needle blight has prompted us to look at alternative species like Douglas fir, which are you know, well-known trees. But we're also doing a lot of uh, experimentation within the forest. We've got that landscape to be able to do it. So we do have a small plantation of eucalyptus. Um, do you? We do. Got any yeah. koalas? We haven't got any koalas, unfortunately, yeah. no. But we've certainly got the I wouldn't eucalyptus be surprised. Yeah. Um, because it's quite a robust tree, yeah, and, yeah. and it grows in this type of condition. There's about ten species you're trialling, isn't there? There's Serbian spruce, there's Macedonian pine, isn't there? There's, there's trees from the west coast of America. Part of the Forest Resilience Project, we've got something called Underplanting Project, which is where we are using other trees as a nurse, for, for the new species to, to grow and to develop. And ironically, actually, if you, if you drive around Thetford Forest, you'll see that we've got a lot of self-sown birch, and birch is also another one of those great things for supporting new species. I think a lot of people also, you know, come to a place like High Lodge. You know, half a million visitors come here a year for recreation purposes, for walking, for cycling. So and here can, comes can, a cyclist now. And here comes yeah. a cyclist now, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and they look at the trees and they don't actually see them as a crop because mm. for us it is a business, it, it's a crop. We don't do too much harvesting around here to spoil the sort of view at High Lodge, but elsewhere in the forest we are active all the time, taking timber out and, and putting it into the market, supporting sawmills in the area. You stick with your grey alpaca, so you have El Camino. Which, I've got this one. El Camino, hi, how are you? He is honestly the most placid and horizontal. Because I don't want an aggressive (laughs) alpaca, Sophie, you know. None of them are aggressive. (laughs) He's a looker. I have come to East Retham, on the edge of the Thetford Forest, and now I'm going walking with alpacas. What, you ask, is an alpaca? I'm with Sophie Gordon from Let's Go Alpaca. They are originally South American and they are from the family of camelids. So camelids. They are related to camels, distantly, but also llamas, which um, a lot of people get llamas and alpacas mixed up. I think I do. <laughs> what, what's the difference? Llamas are bigger than yeah. alpacas, and also their fleece. So 
alpacas were predominantly bred for their fine fleece. It's very soft. It's very nice for, for clothing. It's um, beautiful to stroke. Llamas also have banana-shaped ears, whereas alpacas have uh, nice pointy little ears. So uh, we're in a group, and um, there's one, two, three, four, eight of us. So just as a quick yeah. reminder, so we like to walk our alpacas on the left. Yeah. So that you are on the left, sorry. Other than that, they don't like their heads or bottoms being touched particularly. I don't um, either. No. I, I'm with them. No, yeah. I, I, I can understand that. Yeah, I can. Hello. Hello. Life is odd sometimes, <laughs> isn't it? If there's an obstacle, if you go up, up, they might jump it, they might stumble over it, or they might just clamber through it. But they do sometimes do agility, so depends what mood they're in. But if you go first to show them how it's done. We're going over a fence. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Hooray! There we are. Now we're there now. We're in the forest now. What, what's the route to being to mad alpacaing? First of all, I've always been around animals. Yeah. My mum uh, had ponies and dogs and chickens and rabbits and guinea pigs. I then saw some alpacas at the Suffolk show a few years ago. Fell in love with them, asked lots of questions, and a long story short, I ended up with seven alpacas and the rest they say is, is history and I, I haven't looked back since. Yeah, because you're only just over the border. This is right on the Norfolk-Suffolk border, isn't it? It is, indeed. So I was born and bred in Suffolk, but now I uh, have my own home with my boyfriend Sam and we live, live here. So we've made it our home and the alpacas' home. Yeah, they're starting to get going now. We tend to warn people that on the way into the forest, you're yeah. the one leading the alpaca, and by the time we're on our way back, they'll be leading you. Yeah, no, they're getting going. How do you make the jump to being walking with alpacas and, and, and making a, a, a business in this landscape? We always knew that I wanted them to be more than just pets, that they were going to earn their keep, and we, we still do our breeding and showing, but actually my love is for the animal, I love being around the animal yeah. and I was trying to think how can I make that a business that I can do at weekends and some, some weekdays and actually it made sense to take them for a lovely walk because it means that I get to be around with the alpacas and, and educating people about alpacas because they are still relatively new and a lot of people don't know anything about the alpacas so to be able to educate them and, and learn but in a fun way about the alpacas and their personalities, it felt a natural step. Yeah. Hello. Remind me of your name. Hello. Hello, Sue. What is it about walking alpacas? Do you think that? So I just want to do something different. So I first met Sophie last November, and I was her first experience <laughs> with my daughter. So we had the walking experience and the talk, uh, walk around the woods. It was just something different. They're sitting down now. Yeah. Flame is our laziest alpaca, which is why he's also our fattest alpaca. And sometimes because he needs... he's refusing to get up, isn't he? <laughs> and Sam is 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 falling into his feet. Yeah, there we are. He's more of a follower than a leader, yeah. should we say? He's a big wuss. There are lots of equally mad alpaca owners out there that that 
take their alpacas for walks. It, it's a great experience because it gets people out, it gets the animals out and active. And it's all good experience for them, seeing new surroundings. And it's good exercise, especially for Flame, the big fat one. Yeah. What, what is the personality of an alpaca? Because, I mean, they seem very... They're very nice. They're very sort of restful. They are, so they... I mean, they're sort of mad as well. Yeah. But they're, so they're kind of... Peaceful. They're serene, aren't they? And that is actually another reason I got them. So I, I do get stressed and, and anxious about different things, and they are a very calming influence. Yeah. And generally alpacas' personalities, they have traits because they are a, a prey animal in the wild so they are naturally stoic and they are going to be wary but equally they are very placid and very calm but they all have their own different personalities sorry what was your name ed ed so ed's got an alpaca and this is your wife yes and, and what's her name natalie hello natalie hello hi you had an alpaca wedding we did so we um what a kind of a different wedding. And then we met these guys who um, we come to meet the Yale Packers. Yeah. And we just thought it would be a great idea for our guests and us as well to have the alpacas walk the bright, well, the bridesmaids walk the alpacas down the aisle. Yeah. And um, it was a really big hit. It was a very different kind of wedding. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they were very well behaved. Unlike today. Yes. <laughs> well, Mino was one of our alpacas. bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> He was one of your bridesmaids. He was, yeah. We had wreaths made especially for him, so he wore nice flowers. And <laughs> we didn't actually tell our actual bridesmaids that they were going to be walking them until the day. Did you not? No. <laughs> On purpose. Yeah. Just in case they worried and things like that. And it wasn't like this at your wedding. They, they were well <laughs> behaved. They were really well behaved. Yeah. They hummed all the way through the ceremony. So They hummed? Of, yes. They make a bit of a, a humming noise when they're interested in things, so they... Hummed. <laughs> because I don't know. I don't know that I'm much of an alpaca handler because <laughs> he's really lovely, but he's he's not at he's all greedy, doing what I. He's he not. We've stopped. Us. In short, haven't we? <laughs> so if you stop, they stop. All right. Sorry. Um, we're we're coming through uh, a bit of woodland here, and on a long drive. So over to our left, there's deciduous pine through this what's this here do people come and ride mountain so bikes or motocross something? track motocross yeah, yeah so the forest is, is great awesome. because there's so many different things that go on in this bit of forest so we we share the weekends with the motocross we also um have hoof beats which are a horse riding group that do yeah. lovely uh, pleasure rides within the forest so we have all of these things going on various weekends which is is great it means that the forest gets used by lots of different people. We often come across walkers and dog walkers when we're out on our walks. I bet they're surprised. <laughs> they tend to stand <laughs> to the side with their dogs on the lead and sort of you stare at us, yeah. almost laughing, going, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> Do they get on all right with the dogs? Are they... Generally, the answer is no. Okay. The reason is because they're um, hunted by sort of mountain lions and coyotes in the wild, it is kind of inbuilt in them that that is... A predator. Yeah. However, the boys have encountered multiple dogs, and when we go to agricultural shows with them, there's a lot of dogs there, so they they tend to be okay. 
So we're always wary and we tell our walkers just to be aware that if we see a dog, let the alpaca look at it, but equally just be aware that they might spook or they might just walk on and do nothing. Yeah. We're going down here, are we done? Looks like it. You're mixing the route up, are you? We have returned to Alpaca HQ. The activities have been quite bizarre. Running with dogs was very odd. Walking with alpacas was very, very odd. But they were also lots of fun. People are coming to forests and having fun. They've become a fun space as opposed to a, a frightening space or a dark space. If you go down to the woods today, you're still sure of a big surprise.